doesn't really work that way. Yeah, if, if like a founder comes to us and they're like, you know, I want to keep flipping, like I want to keep starting businesses, that mm. sort of thing. Do they have an attachment or passion to the problem such that they're going to build a, a life-changing business? Yeah. Potentially not. So that's the more mature founder. On the student founder side, you're looking for a student that makes up for what they might miss in insight, in hunger, passion, motivation, mm. ability to, I guess, take on feedback or seat feedback. Back to this episode of the Student Founder Podcast, a platform and community we're building around student entrepreneurship, a platform where we bring on student entrepreneurs, investors, and people interested in businesses in the startup world to talk about their experiences with running uh, and working with successful startups. I'm your host, Oliver Kukanik, PhD student by day, student founder by night. And this episode is brought to you by Rofi Labs, a software development company that I and a group of friends out of the University of Melbourne have helped curate, offering a service in application development and dedicated resources for companies looking to expand their development teams in an economical fashion. If this is something you'd be interested in learning more about, make sure to visit our website at rofilabs.com.au or hit me up directly on LinkedIn at Oliver Q. Kanik. Links will be in the description. Today we have a little bit of a different episode as today we have the a guest who is an investment analyst for a company, a venture capitalist firm called Rampersand. Um, this is a firm that partners with founders to solve big problems in tech. He's an active member of the startup community, recently launching a podcast himself called Abstraction, which is a fantastic name for a podcast that dives into complex, complex areas of emerging technology. A clear expert in understanding and working with uh, startups and addressing the requirements of success in the startup scene. Introducing to you, Hunter Watkin. How's it going, Hunter? Very well, thanks, Ollie. And <laughs> How's your morning thank been? You for the, thank you for the introduction. Morning's been lovely. Started That's off good. with a coffee walk with my lovely girlfriend. And Best way I've to start in, the day. Coming to this lovely Melbourne Connect. Yeah, now you've got your volcanic water, but you're having a bit of a drink. It's We're very, not sponsored. <laughs> very bougie here. Yeah. Still mineral water filtered through vo- volcanic rock. There right. you go. I don't know how they did it, but they've managed it. So... Let's get into it. I guess before we go into some of the deeper dives into the mindset of a venture capitalist, because you yourself work for a venture capitalist firm, Rampersand, maybe we can just briefly touch on what actually does it mean to be an investment analyst? Sure. So an investment analyst in the context of a venture capital firm can mean a few different things. And depending on the size of the firm, what they specialize in, it can vary in terms of the functions, I guess, you you feature in. Um, the first role of a venture capitalist um, is you are meeting with and trying to discover the, the next greatest breed of, of entrepreneurs. Mm. So depending on what your mandate might be for Rampersand, we focus on investing in software companies. We have done sort of deep tech and hardware companies as well, but we have a bias towards companies that can scale really efficiently. Mm. Um, so what that looks like is, you know, Paul and Rampersand have quite a proud history. So we see, you know, 150 opportunities a month. And within that, you know, us, the investment team are meeting with founders, getting to know their story, why they're so motivated to solve a problem. Mm. And then 
assuming that the meeting goes well, um, which is a, a minority of cases. Mm. Uh, like we only invest in one in a thousand companies we wow. see. Yeah. Um, we will then progress uh, with, with more detailed questions. Essentially the way at our stage of investing works, you'll basically, there's not everything's gonna be worked out. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have uh, founders with maybe a unique insight or a really strong team and a good strategy in place. Maybe they've got a product in market with a bit of revenue, yeah. but there's gonna be lots of what we call leaps of faith. So our job is to basically delineate what the leaps of faith are, why we're excited about the deal, and then weighing the risk and reward of that, um, you might progress to making a recommendation to your sure. investment committee yeah. to make an investment, and that will include writing an investment paper, sure. um, that sort of thing. Yeah, and then there's then sort of the negotiation of terms, should you progress through to an investment stage, mm. um, and then after that, which I would describe as sort of the portfolio management aspect, um, you basically will manage each of your investments. Uh, that could involve simple things like collecting metrics and understanding their progress. Mm-hmm. Other times you'll be leaning in to help them with things like go-to-market strategy, sure. strategizing around hiring, all that sort of thing. So yeah. it, it's it's a broad it's a broad scope of work. And yeah. So there's the assessment phase, but then there's the enduring sort of mm. partnership. Yeah. Um, one of the things about venture capital is unlike, you know, your traditional private equity where you might be coming into a mature business um, and and restructuring to generate shareholder wealth. Mm. Here you're investing at a really early stage and often these relationships last a decade, longer yeah, than yeah. your average marriage. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what that really sure. means is you need to work out, both parties need to work out, the investor and the startup. Yeah do they want to work with each other for a long term? Because there's sure. going to be ups and downs and you need yeah, to be yeah. ready to ride those waves. Yeah, interesting. Now, that's a very good, um, I guess, understanding of exactly what you kind of do. So I read that, you know, you kind of come from a, a law commerce background. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, how did that kind of, I guess, swayed you into wanting to get involved in the startup world and then obviously become a, you know, investment analyst? Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess the law commerce background demonstrates that I wasn't laser, sh- like absolutely sure what it was I was going to to go into. Um, I've always liked being a generalist. I've never really warmed to being a specialist in something, which is okay now I've discovered. Um, I loved like writing and, and fine tuning that muscle and delivering concise communication. I also didn't want to give up um, the math side of things and, and data-driven decisions. Yeah. So was always looking for something that would allow me to do both of those. And so I tried out consulting for a little bit, um, tried the investment banking a bit briefly, mm. um, and the law firm. Yeah. Uh, and you know, each of those, probably with the exception of the law firm, allowed me to, to flex each of those muscles. But yeah. The one thing that was really stood out to me about venture capital was like I could be doing both sort of like the deal terms and structuring and negotiation mm. while doing that sort of data-driven analysis. Um, and I guess the ultimate decision came down to like how how unique is this opportunity? Yeah, Will I have a great ability to, I guess, control the impact I have at an early stage? And that's something that you get with 
going into it, I guess, a less structured, smaller team. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I thought that it was the best way for me to put to work some of the, the early learnings I've had at uni and throughout yeah, yeah. my career, yeah. all while, I guess, maximising the impact I could have. Yeah, absolutely. So how did the opportunity arise that you became part of an investment, a venture capitalist firm? Yeah, so... I was, uh, I'd just completed a few internships at yep. more traditional uh, pathways for a commerce law student. And frankly, I was underemployed. It was um, my final semester of university, uh, middle of COVID. I was scouring LinkedIn, trying to really make a decision on which of the traditional pathways I wanted to take. Yep. Um, I'd, I'd reached out to a lot of people that were sort of three to five years ahead of me that might have made career changes trying mm. to understand. It's a good method to use, you know, to really, kind of like it's a really follow good the method. path that's already been created. Yeah, like thing. lots of respect for like older like parents and their mm. friends, that sort of thing. But really the best people to speak to are the people that are three to five years ahead of you yeah, and yeah. have just gone through what you're probably about to go through. Well, it's like you can see the clear vision and then follow those steps that have already been paved. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I kind of um, I kind of met with people from varying varying stages, um, varying, I guess, careers. Um, ultimately, I came across Rampersand because I'd seen someone that I'd chatted to in the past, mm. had spent a bit of time there. Um, they'd moved into a role up in Sydney uh, and essentially just reached out to Rampersand, um, mm. outlined why I had, had why I'd picked my interest talked to a bit of my experience um, in the past and eventually we had a number of interviews and they tested things like how do I respond to robust feedback mm-hmm. how do you like are you comfortable expressing yourself and being challenged those sorts of things because it's a very it's an environment where you're having to make decisions on incomplete information sets sure. And you have to build conviction in, in unique ways. And, yeah, and, and have almost, good judgment as well, right? Yeah. yeah, so they were really testing that sort of character element. Mm. Um, and I started as an intern. They didn't promise any graduate roles. But, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's I, a good place I, to start, you know, like sacrifice of time versus money. And then you get that opportunity kind of pr- promotes more opportunity in the future. You know? Yeah. So it's like delayed gratification and such. Yeah, exactly. Um, and basically, I really enjoyed it. I really warmed to it. I worked really hard and I actually was using Rampersand and, and the team, each of which have a variety of experiences. It's a bit of a sounding board for what do you mm. think I should do? And then at the final hour, they like, actually, do you want to start with us? Which was a thrill. So that was about a year and a half ago now. Very um, nice. I'm really yeah. enjoying it. Are there any, I guess, honourable mentions of specific things you experienced that really like you know, sparked your interest in the field? Yeah, it's a good question. I think like, you know, I've done, as I mentioned, those traditional internships. I also worked in catering, worked in yep, a small yep. construction business. I think the main one I would say that really sort of got me thinking about whether I wanted to be focused on delivering like a traditional service or um, perhaps trying to improve efficiency or being around like innovation was working at uh, an accounting firm called Findex. Sure. I was working in their internal digital projects team. Um, and there I was sort of split across a few roles. One was product management of their uh, customer relationship management system mm-hmm. um, and understanding the feedback they were getting from their advisor force and implementing that into efficiency changes for mm-hmm. the organisation. Also using the data generated from that CRM 
to, I guess, provide insights to their executive team. And that was something that they hadn't really had oversight over and being part of the team that built the Power BI dashboards to inform the executive Mm. was super cool because all of a sudden you're giving them access to actionable insights um, that they didn't previously have. Um, And there was also an element of um, product health management, which was sort of understanding, uh, I guess, the more qualitative side of how developers within their internal digital teams were feeling, collecting those insights and helping to, uh, I guess, allow the executive to make decisions around that. Mm. And so across that experience, one thing I realised was not only am I, like, interested in the delivery of a service but like how a service can be delivered better yeah and so from then on when i went and worked at a law firm and consulting i was always thinking like how could this be more efficient you know if i'm if i'm doing something that feels a little bit mundane Mm. like what sort of software might be able to improve this yeah yeah. um which i think really got the sort of interest in venture and software yeah yeah so it sounds like you got a lot of I guess, technical hands-on experience working with various types of businesses from the, you know, I guess, process development phase and then technical, like, data phase. So maybe we can now move on to a part which is a bit more insight for the, you know, the entrepreneurs out there watching this episode of the mentality of a, ve- of a venture capitalist, right? What, what do venture capitalists look for in, in invest- investing in a particular product, right? So... Um, maybe we can first start this conversation with a very more so like educational description of the difference between, uh, I guess, a venture capitalist and something like an angel investor, right? Because I feel like there's a there's not a clear distinction in a lot of people's minds. I know coming from a, you know, startup phase that I wasn't well aware of the differences and what the benefits are and whether one's more suitable for you or the other. So maybe you can talk to that idea a little bit. Sure. I think I think the first distinction you make is just a, a matter of phase and maturity of your startup. Mm. So uh, there's strange names for the maturity of a, of a venture-backed or a startup. And the first one is sort of the angel phase. Yeah. Angels is, is the first believer usually. So it's someone that might be known personally to you, yeah. might be friends and family, Often the best angels are people that have a really unique insight to the problem you're solving and can provide that sounding board or be, I guess, a validating mechanism for you as you go out to market um, and try to raise further capital. You can say, look, I'm trying to solve this synthetic bio problem mm. and I've got this guy from might be a university or, or, a, or a business that has a specialised understanding of that and he's saying, yep, I reckon this founder, be yeah. a student or whoever it is, is on something that sure. can be really helpful. Um, the angels are typically going to invest a smaller amount of money, mm. and when you're raising an angel round, you might have to raise from from a number of angels. They have their own sort of syndicates or networks where yeah, yeah. they can combine small investments from a whole lot of different angels and put it under, I guess, one line on the cap table. Yeah, angels typically might invest in something pre-product so sure. it might be idea stage a bit more of a, that sort a of risk thing. almost as well right high risk yeah. um, but then obviously to, to consume more of your company often asking for more equity is that is that often the case not necessarily they will be investing really small checks and from yeah. an angel perspective just like a vc that they, they need to diversify their portfolio mm. so their approach is you know 
taking a, a quite a quite a series of investments mm. and knowing that very few will come off but the ones that do because they've invested at the early stage yeah. so for a tech software company it might be at a valuation between two and five million dollars sure. which is quite low yeah. um relatively relatively yeah, um and then the ones that do come off and go to 100 200 million you're already looking at pretty mega returns there yeah so it's really just a risk appetite and a size thing uh a size a sizing i guess comparison uh when it comes to venture capitalists they're not necessarily ruled out of investing in companies that are pre-product um, pre-MVP, MVP mm. being minimal viable product. Yep, yep. Um, but venture capitalists typically write larger checks. Um, they typically like to see a product in market with some sort of demonstration of a customer's willingness to pay for it mm. or in something that indicates that it's got high engagement, those sorts of things, which is harder at the at the pre-product stage. Yeah. Um, there's also just a difference in the way the money will be deployed. Sure. So with an angel, you know, it might be a couple meetings and then I guess an easier capital provision yeah, yeah. Uh, with a fund you have to go through typically, and this can be really fast. Um, we've seen that with a number of companies, particularly during the bull run, mm-hmm. uh, like venture yeah, funds yeah. deploying money very fast. But typically it goes through a due diligence process and then mm-hmm. it goes through an investment committee so that can be that can take a little bit longer as well. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So I guess um, I I don't know if this is uh, the correct thing to assume, but I feel like a lot of people, you know, when they're you know determining whether they want angel investment or maybe something like a venture capitalist firm, that obviously you've already described some of the benefits of both. But is there a risk in you know asking for funding too early in some way, like an angel investor? Because, you know, they may just be in it for maybe the money or something like that. Well, ultimately, like, if an angel's in it for the money, they want you to go well. So I think people get a little bit confused around alignment. It's very different to, like, a private equity firm that is is more concerned with just shareholder value in in a mature company and reducing a cost base. Where at, at the angel stage, you're investing in an individual and frankly, there is no value yet. Yeah, yeah. So unless you can find another buyer, <laughs> it doesn't matter if an angel owns yeah, yeah. 90% or 2%. Sure, um, sure. So angels are ultimately motivated for you to progress. Mm. They're motivated for you to be able to raise a next round of capital and it's probably not going to be the angel leading the round. Mm. So there is true alignment there. I've rarely heard of situations where an angel investment has completely derailed a company because, frankly, that's just a silly thing for an angel to do. Sure. Um, so I would just say that, yeah, when you're raising from angels, you want them to, I guess, turbocharge your ability to mm. deliver whatever it is you're delivering. Yeah. You want them to help you help connect you to, to VCs in the future. Um, and you just want to, with the angel, work out what they want to see you achieve yeah. with their pot of money. Let's say you've raised 500K, they're not expecting you to come back to them in six months with $10 million revenue, sure, sure. massive enterprise clients, but yeah. they might expect you to execute on a strategy, get a product um, at, to the MVP stage, for instance, sure, sure. which allows you to perhaps 
start talking to you know your seed stage and VC investors. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so speaking from I guess a venture capitalist mindset then, and those firms that kind of you know deploy a, a larger a larger um, system and enterprise around investing, I guess it's more addressable for you, but what additional benefits are there of going through venture capitalists because obviously they give you the funding but do they also give you the support and expertise and that like kind of educational capacity to build your business yeah so it's going to vary enormously depending on on the firm um venture investors it's interesting we're doing a survey internally our head of experience is doing a survey with founders both pre-seed right through to unicorn founders and saying what's the key thing you look for in an investor Hmm. fundamentally it's a relationship where you can go to someone and confide in them like it can be very lonely experience so Hmm. so we're very focused on making sure that we're that sounding board and i think most vcs are um sometimes you'll have a big vc that's so big and so like got so much turnover that sort of thing that maybe you lose that yeah um a, a VC firm is going to have different strings to its bow. So Rampersand has been very focused on making sure that each person it brings into its organisation yeah. has a different skill set and a different background. Mm. So we, within our organisation, our venture partners, one is extremely technical, um, has a great line of experience working as a VP of uh, engineering at sure. Microsoft, at uh, Google Maps as well. Yeah at uh, Ron, uh sorry uh, tinder more recently oh, nice. um, yeah. and then another venture partner has really strong marketplace experience Re- recently uh, ceo of rmit online managing right. director of etsy yeah, so yeah. depending on like the investment we're making mm. they will lean in lean in and help where necessary sometimes founders want us to get out of the way yeah ideally you have it have a good ongoing relationship nonetheless but you don't want to get too involved particularly at the early stage there'll be things like helping them with hiring connecting them to to potential i guess go-to-market consultants that sort of thing yeah and then there's for a lot of founders that might not necessarily be financial and vc and connecting to investors might be quite opaque yeah there's the exercise in helping them understand what milestones might need to be achieved for mm-hmm. them to achieve their next round of capital so sure. that's something you know both the principals that i work with that are based in sydney have really strong financial acumen sure so they will uh do the modeling with the founders talk about you know what sort of levers need to be pulled or milestones need to be achieved to help us sort of go to market with our next round of raising because yeah. rampers and is a seed focused investor we've followed on uh, we like to follow on and do follow on most of the time into a lot of our companies, sure. but there is that element of helping our founders achieve their next round of capital yep, yep. as well. Yeah, interesting perspective. Um, okay, so I guess we're kind of talking about, you know, the funding and everything like that. I think now's a good time to kind of address the idea of, you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I feel like the founders themselves, you know, sometimes they enter this game a bit naive. They don't really know exactly what the venture capitalist is looking for. What are some of the the traits or quantifiable features that you as an investment analyst kind of look for in quantifying whether or not someone is worth investing in? Yeah, so I think there's two there's two things to distinguish sure, sure. there. The first one is like the metrics yep. or the numbers or yep. the features of a company that you'd look for. And then there's the founder and the yeah, more yeah. qualitative behavioral aspects. Sure. 
So around the metrics, it's going to depend on what type of business it is. Mm. So for Ramsand, our sort of three broad verticals that we look at are B2B SaaS, which is just software that is sold to a business. Mm -hmm. There is like disruptive marketplaces, which we have like a line of experience investing in, uh, and then just AI and automation. And across each of those, what we might look for is different. There's also consumer-facing apps, for instance, which we have done some consumer investments, but not necessarily a focus. Um, In each of those, there's different metrics. So for a consumer-facing app where churn is a massive issue, you might look to things like, what is the ratio of a customer's lifetime value? So the value you can extract from a customer before they churn relative to how much money you spend acquiring that customer. Because if that ratio is, let's say, less than one, you haven't got a very profitable business or or a business that's showing signs of reaching profitability. If it's a B2B SaaS product, you're looking for things like how engaged is the user or customer or number of customers within an organization. The reason you're looking at that is you want to make, you want to understand how likely are they to churn and who are our best customers and why are they loving it so much so that we can ensure that all our other customers are driving that value. So some actual metrics are sort of like weekly and monthly active users. Mm -hmm. So understanding like, is there power users or is there just a general spread? And if there is power users, you might focus on understanding why they're power users. Um, With marketplaces, it might be something like gross merchandise value. So how much of product and how much money is being spent or transacted through the product. And you'll look at sort of like demographics and and who's investing and why, or I guess transacting and why. Um, so it, the, the simple answer is it's going to really vary depending on the vertical. Mm. I think if you take a step back and you look at like an early stage company, as I mentioned earlier, and this is the way I articulate it, people articulate it in different ways. Yeah. For us, we want to see, and sometimes it won't be in numbers, but we want to see a demonstrated willingness of a, of a mass of customers to pay for something, sure. even if... The product's perhaps not in market. It's yeah. a lot easier if the product is. So how do you go about, I mean, from this bit of a tangent, but addressing that as a founder to find whether or not someone's willing to pay for that product before actually releasing the product? Exactly. So it is hard yeah. and it takes time. There is no shortcuts to doing that. Hmm. You might because you have an insight or you're really close to the customer set, but often it is a, a really long research exercise and you might be looking for patterns in qualitative feedback and trying to quantify Mm. how long something might take someone. If you're trying to make something more efficient, you're quantifying that. Mm. And then you can start to use these patterns to paint a picture of the numbers that you might be able to use to explain what we, like investors looking for a 10x improvement in the way something's done. The reason you look for 10x is because there are these costs around switching from how you do something, yeah. um, getting approval, all these sorts of things. So for it to be worthwhile for a company to change hmm. who what their current process is, you need that much of a better solution. Yeah. So being able to sur- do surveys, however it might be, there are all kinds of shortcuts. Yeah. Um, and putting that into, I guess, a mass or a sample size that you can drive numbers for mm-hmm. pre-product. Sure. Is, is usually the way to go. On your question on what do you look for like in a founder, yeah. 
this this really varies um the way paul has always described it uh my boss who i i tend to uh, i tend to agree with in, on this matter yeah. is you're looking for someone that is is seriously optimistic yeah but you're also looking for that balance of optimism with pathological paranoia <laughs> so on the surface you've got someone that's that's really really ambitious really believes in what they're doing yeah. believes they have what it takes to, to, to build a team around them, that sort of thing, because that's quite infectious as mm. a potential employer, that sort of thing, which is really important mm. at the startup stage. Like, it is all about the team you're building. Sure. And then we also want to see that that is balanced with some concern around the fact that, you know, startup land is competitive and it's only going to get more competitive. Yeah. We want to believe that this founder has the ability to continue to learn, be really conscious of their shortcomings, mm. seek help and advice where they where they do have those shortcomings because it is a massive skill to be able to balance those two things and often we will meet founders that have this infectious, I guess, charisma yeah. and confidence. But then when we ask them questions that are tricky, they might be a little bit dismissive or not concerned about it sure. and for us that can be a proxy for you know are they going to take advice that not might not be from us but when it counts and mm. where they need it yeah, yeah. because no one's perfect particularly for students yeah, yeah. student founders yeah. they've got a lot to learn so yeah. it's just making sure they've got that balance of character traits definitely so that kind of i guess alludes to my next question which is something we discussed before the show but um in terms of you know, different archetypes or different people at different levels asking for, you know, investment from a venture capitalist. What is the difference between how a venture capitalist may view the student founder versus a more mature, you know, startup founder? Yeah, great segue. Uh, and it's a really interesting distinction. Uh, I think when you're looking at someone that's got a career working within a certain industry, and they're coming to you and they're like, I'm going to disrupt this industry. Mm. That's really compelling. Like they've had a decade working in a certain space. For whatever reason, it might have slowed. There might be reasons, be it regulatory, politically, structurally, that slow down their ability to make changes internally. And that they might realize that there is something they can do with software that can be copy and pasted across a lot of organizations. Yeah and have a really strong idea of how to do that. So that can be really impressive. They've experienced what it's like to lead or work in big teams. They've got that muscle. Mm. On the other hand, you might look at someone like this and be like, are they, do they have the ambition and drive to make sure that they will stop at all costs to solve this problem? Yeah. And the reason you look for that is like, at the early stage of founding a startup, there is so much ahead of you and so many problems and Absolutely. so many setbacks that you really want to, honestly, we want to understand whether this person is, is this going to be their last work? Are they really committed to yeah, this? Because yeah, yeah. it is a massive mountain of work. Well, it's like you said, like it's often a, you know, 10 plus year commitment. Exactly. You know? Like you want to, you want to have that longevity and you got to assess, you know, the founder to make sure that they really know what they're getting into and they're not just trying to, you know, flip a quick dollar or something like that you know? exactly right it's not really it doesn't really work that way yeah you know? if if like a founder comes to us and they're like you know i want to keep flipping like i want to keep starting businesses that mm. sort of thing 
do they have an attachment or passion to the problem such that they're going to build a, a life-changing business? Yeah. Potentially not. So that's the more mature founder. On the student founder side, you're looking for a student that makes up for what they might miss in insight, in hunger, passion, motivation, mm. ability to, I guess, take on feedback or seat feedback. So, and also there's, the younger you are, I guess, the less jaded and less, I guess, um, conservative you are in what you believe might be possible. And that can be really infectious. Like you look at some, some startup founders that, are young, they can still attract really sort of old and wise, um, more experienced people to their organisation. For instance, one of our portfolio companies, Muso, are a group of um, young Melbourneian former musicians, people that worked yep. in and around music uh, and wanted to, I guess, improve the way that live entertainment was organised. And through that mission, they've attracted, you know, former CTO from Muso, who's a lot older and mm perhaps a lot wiser. I don't know if they'd agree with that, but I, you know, possibly they'd say that. Yeah. Um, and they've been able to attract him through their, I guess, passion and ambition. And I think students have a real advantage in being able to sort of say, you know, I'm, I'm embarking on this journey. Mm. I don't necessarily have a career behind me. I don't have a, a plethora of, you know, wealth. You might have had sure. previous exits this is what I'm going to do and get on board the rocket ship. Yeah, so yeah. so there are trade-offs, um, but I don't think just because you don't have experience in something should preclude you from, from I guess, tackling a problem. Yeah, absolutely. That's some um, good insight. So I guess we'll move on to a... I mean, you've kind of already touched on a lot of this, but just to put it out there in a more formal fashion, engaging with the, the startups themselves. So you yourself working for the investment firm, like... How have you, I guess, directly aided, or how have you directly aided, is that the word, yeah, aided? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, how have you directly assisted um, some of the startups that you've actually worked with in the past? Yeah, it's interesting, like, using the word direct. I would say that our main role is to ensure that they're charting a path towards achieving the milestones that they sought to achieve, because ultimately... Yep that's what we're, we're judging them on mm. and judging ourselves on because uh, ultimately our customers are investors. Yep. We've got to explain to our fund manager that they're progressing in this way. So it's really just that function. I mm. guess you also don't want to be making decisions for these startups. Yeah. Like ultimately they understand their business a, a lot better than we can. Sure. Um, so it's more so a matter of making sure that they're prioritizing the right things. So, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, in this current capital market, yeah. uh, it's not the most glamorous role, but making sure that with our insight and how we understand, uh, I guess the dryness of capital and, and, the scarceness of it, um, we've had to talk to our founders and be like, look, here's the reality of what's expected for a company at your stage, yeah. growing at your rate, um, to attract your next round of capital, which is critical because these are not profitable businesses. Mm. Uh, these are the changes you might have to think about. Ultimately, you know, we don't like to be like, there's a, condition, a binary condition precedent around who you have to hire and fire, that's not really our yeah, role. Yeah. They have yeah. to make those decisions. But ultimately, 
if that is what's required for them to attract another round of capital, yeah. it's definitely something that we, we, we will call it helping them. Mm. They might not feel that way at the time, but it's, it's a real reality. Um, you think t- there's that like kind of in, in that guidance phase where you're kind of addressing you know, concerns and things like mm. that to, for, the, for the founder themselves to have humility in what you're saying and actually take it on board? How important do you think that is rather than just you know, brushing it off and kind of just being like, oh. I think in most cases, founders are definitely taking it on board. Yeah. Um, it's more so just the, the human element. Like you are building a really small team and the last thing you want to do when you're building momentum is have to make difficult decisions around who stays, who mm. goes, potentially, you know, scaling someone's days back, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. You might have the inverse of that. You might have people mm. that are really good at selling but really need to understand what the technical, I guess, the technical scope of what they're trying to do might involve and, yeah. and we'll, we'll lean in early to help them with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, so you could probably touch on this idea, but in terms of your experience working, you know, with startups and helping them like kind of and guiding them through that, that fundamental phase of growth uh, over a 10 year period or whatever it may be that Rampersand is investing in, You've kind of already addressed the fact that there's an importance of, you know, making sure you select the right people for the startup team, right? Mm. What, or maybe how do you advise people to find the right partners when going into, you know, some type of commitment like their own startup? Are you you talking about employees or investors Mm, or? Maybe from a, I guess, like orientating yourself around the right team from an employment perspective but also as maybe co-founder of trying to find the right partner in crime, as mm. you may will, to, yeah. So there are there are organisations set up for that specific purpose. Yeah. So there are organisations like Antler, which is sure. essentially set up for you to come with either an idea or a desire to join a startup, mm. and you might be matched together with another founder. Yeah. The other way is just, and I think this one is the more more organic one is yeah. you know you, you find a certain subject matter um there's a million and one slack and facebook groups and you yeah. try and sort of find a mind that might meet with yours that way yeah uh there is no perfect formula i think that we definitely have a bias for hearing a really organic story around how founders came together mm. that being said we've also met some incredible founding teams that would never have met each other but for a program like Antler. Um, So in terms of finding people to start a startup with, I think like focusing on a problem area and joining groups and communities with that focus and finding someone that's already motivated in that way but that has very different skills to you is a good thing. I think definitely we don't look for a founding team where you've got three devs with the exact same coding experience Mm. and nothing else you really want people that are complementary both in skills and personality types um, and that get along really well and appreciate each other's diverse thinking because ultimately it's a lean machine a startup Mm. Um, and you know not to say that just being on your own is a bad thing but having diversity of opinion is definitely something we look for so i think as a founder you shouldn't necessarily be thinking i'm going to find three people that are the same as me mm. should be thinking you know let's let's find something we're passionate about and find people that have really different skill sets to me because that's definitely very attractive to an investor where you have a founding team with with that mix yeah definitely in terms of em- employment it's definitely the hardest thing 
mm. possible uh, with a startup and different firms will have different ways of assisting with it. Some will have an internal head of talent. Um, I think in Australia, we're at a really exciting time where there are, and I'm quite connected with some of these groups, there's organisations like Early Work, yep. um, which I'm sure you've has been spoke on the podcast once before, and if not, it's essentially a, an organisation that helps uh, young uh, entrepreneurial or ambitious people working in, at universities or in early careers to connect with startups that they might be passionate about. Yeah. Um, and within those organisations, it's been amazing to see, or organisation been amazing to see, uh, founders directly sort of sharing their story and people asking them questions. Yeah. And it's really been a much more organic mechanism for, for connecting with potential employees or operators that might want to join your business. Mm. Um, and it's certainly something that we encourage our, our founders to explore and, yeah. and we, I guess, survey it lightly for, for talent that might be looking for roles. Um, and then within our networks, obviously, there's yeah. always going to be past people we've worked with, um, Ramsan has quite a, a seek flair. Um, Nicole, who's uh, worked with us as investment director for a long time, Helen worked at Seek, and within those networks, those early Australian startup networks, mm. there's incredible talent and people that they've formed enduring relationships with that can be that can be great when it comes to hiring a really strong. You know, it might be a, an operator or marketing leader, whatever it might Absolutely, be. Absolutely, yeah. No, good perspective. Um, I want to talk a little bit before we before we wrap it up about your podcast abstraction, right? Um, so what what is the podcast focused on? Maybe you can just briefly highlight that. Sure. So I started abstraction, really wanting to learn out in the open, like mm. a great way for me to, I guess, continue to push myself. Like I, I'm an early early stage venture capital investor, I certainly yeah, yeah. don't know everything and working at a generalist tech VC firm, it's very hard for me to be an expert in a number of areas. So what I really wanted to do was be able to look at a certain subject matter and in particular emerging technologies that are poorly yeah. misunderstood that people are skeptical about mm. and try and garner a range of perspectives from people and stakeholders that might have different motivations. Yeah. So everyone knows those podcasts that sort of just become a microphone for promoting certain things where mm. people come on and shill yeah. whatever their project is or business is sure. and it, you're not really getting that balance cut through. Yeah. I wanted to position myself as a reliable pair of hands, someone that, that cares deeply or, or understands, tries to understand deeply mm. um, complex subject matter and does so with a, a balanced range of perspectives. Definitely, yeah. yeah. More of an educational platform as such where you're it, educating a community about yeah, issues in tech and things, challenges in tech and things. Combination of education. Um, there's there's a news element, although sure, sure. particularly in Web three, which the first series is on, that can evolve yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Uh, there's also honestly me, myself wanting to connect with people that are at the forefront of these emerging technologies. It's my role to to find and and understand uh, how tech is evolving and what really good companies might look like and so mm. if I can build that network out in the open you know with lawyers investors subject matter experts that can be a really good way for me to sort of have a network of people I can shortcut to it to an incisive view on something about yeah yeah, yeah there yeah. you go okay so you, you touched a little bit on you know 
how you're kind of addressing the skepticism in tech, right? So maybe you could highlight a little bit about your perspective on some of the challenges that, or maybe the current day challenges that we face in the tech industry as such, whether it's implementation of Web3 or whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty boundless. Uh, there's a couple things. Like one thing is in Web3, for instance, I think one of the key challenges is founders have like incredible ambition about, you know, new models of rewarding participation and contribution to projects. And it's largely described as token strategy, but token strategy, if you're going to attract investment in the past, you know, we've seen things like uh, initial coin offerings, initial exchange offerings where, you know, most of the time you've got ill-informed retail investors Mm. aping into certain things. And most of the time, not a lot good comes of it. There are exceptions. I think the next wave of Web3 for it to get legitimacy and and bridge the gap between sort of your traditional investors that are very careful about making sure that they're risk averse and and these these much higher risk opportunities, there really needs to be um, a lot of leadership around like what legal docs, they might Mm. not be physical docs, they might be something else, will look like in the future. How will you safely be able to raise, it could be in cash, that converts into tokens and how and educating founders on what that might look like in a cost-effective way. So there is there is a small handful of Australian lawyers or expert consultants on raising money via tokens, but I think it's a small batch and they're, they're very valuable. And accordingly, I don't think they share things out in the open, yeah. but it is a, definitely a necessary step for founders that are, do have that Web3 vision about raising raising funds Mm. using tokens. I think education there and understanding has a long way to go in Australia. Definitely. Um, And it's something that I'm really keen to, I'm definitely no expert, but I'm starting to get an understanding of who might be. And so leaning into an understanding and helping improve education in that space is something that I'm quite passionate about. that's probably the main one sure, for Web3, sure. yeah. as I do my next series on, yeah. on an emerging tech space, which yeah. I will release soon. So no, um, you don't want to drop it here? Won't, won't <laughs> drop it here. There's, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of things I'm considering still. Sure, sure. Um, but I'll have another another thing that's sort of a bee in my bonnet that I'm, yeah. I'm really keen to see. I'm keen to see it. Keen yeah. to see it. So yeah, I guess um, before we wrap it up then, I like to do a, just a small segment of kind of finalize the podcast and it's kind of getting your perspective on maybe some advice that you'd, gi- you'd give to some of the founders out yep. there watching this episode of the Student Founder Podcast. Sure. Uh, so I guess from a founder's perspective, one thing that uh, I think is misunderstood or a mistake that's often made is just the difference between telling a story and your ambition versus like misleading about where your company might be at or what you know. It's kind of what I spoke to about a little bit about a founder's integrity early, yeah. earlier. It is really, really infectious and encouraging to hear a founder talk about how passionate they are about something, the steps they believe they need to take to get somewhere. And I think just having a distinction between not being Like there's no reason to be humble. Australians are quite humble relative to Americans, for instance. 
talk about your big vision. Talk about how you plan to change the world. Yeah. But also balance that with if someone asks you a question like, how are you planning to sell and are you going to use this and are you going to use that? And you're kind of like, I don't know the answer to that. Just be totally upfront and be like, I haven't thought, I haven't got an answer for you right now, but here's how I'm strategizing towards towards solving it. Here are yeah. my hypotheses that I'm going to test against. Uh, that is much more impressive than saying, oh yeah, it's complex, but we're going to be doing this and that and fluffing your way through it sure. than an investor later going and doing due diligence and being like, okay, they misled us here or they don't, there's not a lot under the hood. So I think that sort of integrity is really important. Otherwise, I would just say there are baby steps towards founding a startup. Mm. I think there is an edge of cases where a startup founder can just sit up in bed one day and be like, I'm going to begin a rocket ship. Like, yeah. you need to be talking to people and learning from people that are role models. So organisations like Early Work, speaking to venture capitalists, yeah. venture capitalists are usually really receptive to, to reach outs, is really helpful um, for, for just working out who your tribe might be and who has those sort of similar insights. One thing I'd say about reaching out to venture capitalists is like the biggest challenge of our role is your allocation of attention and we want to be as valuable as possible. Yeah. To shortcut that, if you're reaching out to a, a venture capitalist, think carefully about how they might feel feel they're being valuable. So if you go to them and you're like, hey, Hunter, would love to understand what venture capital is about, I'm going to be like, oh, how valuable can I be here? They're probably, they could research that and read an article on that sort yep. of thing. But if they go and say, hey, Hunter, I've explored um, selling into this customer segment or I, I really want to understand how the funding mechanism works and what type of uh, instruments, be it convertible notes or safer used to, to raise money. I have an insight that's probably better than a quick Google search or yeah, yeah, that sure. sort of thing where I can really be helpful. Yeah. Um, so I think just going with pointed questions and being really deliberate about what you want from a conversation yeah. will, will, will heighten your chances of having, having not only a response but getting really meaningful insights. Definitely, yeah. All right, so um, Hunter Watkin, everyone, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's been you know, phenomenally ex uh, insightful for, you know, the viewership, myself, I've learned a lot during this podcast. And if you want to follow, you know, Hunter Watkin, we'll put all his socials in the description. We'll link his abstraction podcast as well to vertically integrate it into this, of course. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we appreciate it. Hopefully you had a good time. Thanks so much for having me, Ollie. I love what you guys are doing and yeah. I'm super pumped to start listening to all of the episodes. Absolutely. All right, guys, no worries. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of the Student Founder Podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to like and subscribe and follow us on all social media platforms. Links will be in the description. I just want to reiterate that this episode was brought to you by Rofi Labs, a software development platform that me and a group of friends created out of UniMob to help startups kind of bring their ideas to life through the development phase of their MVPs to development teams and uh, I guess expanding those development teams. If this is something you'd be interested in learning more about, visit our website at rofilabs.com.au or directly hit me up on LinkedIn at Oliver Q. Kanick. Until next time, thank you so much for watching. Stay grindy.